Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for the Therapeutics Thursday podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Christian Kroll, and I will be your host today for the ASHP Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. With me today is Dr. Dan McCain from the University of Iowa, who specializes in emergency medicine and toxicology. I additionally have Madeline Shepard, who is a P4 pharmacy student from the University of Georgia. Thank you both for joining us today. And now let's get started about talking about today's topic, which is alcohol withdrawal management, specifically within the emergency department. Let's start, start off with you, Madeline. Would you be able to, to provide some background about the pathophysiology and the incidence of alcohol withdrawal? Hi, Christian. Thank you for having me. And yes, I would love to talk about this very important topic with you all. Alcohol withdrawal is an increasingly relevant issue for practitioners involved in emergency care. The emergency department is usually the first destination for patients with complications of alcohol use, and alcohol-related visits to emergency departments in the United States increased 61% from 2006 to 2014 for both acute and chronic alcohol-related problems. In fact, this increase in visits related to alcohol was greater than the rate of increase in overall visits to the emergency department for the same time period. Excessive alcohol use is responsible for 88,000 deaths in the U.S. United States and over 2.5 million deaths globally per year, both due to acute and chronic complications. Alcohol use disorder, or AUD as I'll refer to it, has been reported in 20 to 50% of hospitalized patients, and up to 50% of these hospitalized patients with AUD will experience alcohol withdrawal syndrome, or AWS. 10% will suffer seizures, and 3 to 5% will experience alcohol withdrawal delirium, known as delirium tremens, or DTs, a complication that is associated with up to 20% mortality without intervention. In regard to the pathophysiology of alcohol withdrawal syndrome, chronic exposure to alcohol induces biochemical changes to various neuronal pathways and availability of neurotransmitters. Alcohol enhances the inhibitory effects of gamma-aminobutyric acid, or GABA, which suppresses neuronal activity. Over time, with chronic exposure to alcohol, GABA receptors become less responsive and more alcohol is needed to achieve the same effects, which is known as tolerance. Alcohol also antagonizes the N-methyl-D-aspartate, or NDMA, receptor, leading to a reduction in the central nervous system's overall excitatory tone. To counteract these changes and maintain CNS homeostasis, excitatory glutamate receptors are then upregulated in the brain. Upon abrupt removal of alcohol from the system, GABA receptors remain less responsive and glutamate is left unopposed, resulting in a hyperexcitable state and thereby lowering the threshold for seizures. By similar mechanisms, upregulation of noradrenergic and dopaminergic pathways leads to hyperactivity of the autonomic nervous system and hallucinations, which are associated with alcohol withdrawal. Awesome. Thank you, Madeline, for that review. I think it's also important to kind of categorize these patients because each patient presenting to the emergency department might be a little bit different. Would you be able to describe the different stages of alcohol withdrawal when they happen and notable items with each one? 
Alcohol withdrawal can begin within six hours after a person's last alcoholic drink and can be characterized by four different stages based on the presence and severity of symptoms and the timing of their appearance in reference to the time elapsed since the last drink. Stage one is known as the hangover stage and is associated with relatively mild symptoms, discomfort, physiological changes, including diaphoresis, palpitations, mild tremor, insomnia, anxiety, headache, gastrointestinal upset. These symptoms can appear as soon as six to eight hours after a person's last drink and usually last for 24 to 48 hours unless the withdrawal progresses to more advanced stages. Stage two is often referred to as the alcoholic hallucinosis stage. And as that name implies, auditory, tactile, or visual hallucinations can occur along with worsening of symptoms from stage one. A small subset of individuals with chronic heavy alcohol use can experience withdrawal hallucinations, and they most commonly occur about 12 to 24 hours after a person's last drink. Notably in this stage, the patient is still lucid and oriented to their surroundings, which differentiates this stage from the more serious and advanced complication of delirium tremens. So moving on to the third stage of alcohol withdrawal syndrome, seizures can occur in up to 10% of patients experiencing active withdrawal. These seizures most commonly begin 12 to 24 hours after a person's last drink, and the risk for these seizures can last up to 48 hours following abstinence. They typically present as isolated, short-duration, generalized tonic-clonic seizures. An initial seizure is associated with a markedly increased risk of experiencing multiple seizures, often in clusters with short or absent post-ictal periods. Prolonged seizures and status epilepticus are uncommon in alcohol withdrawal syndrome. About a third of patients who develop alcohol withdrawal-related seizures will progress to a late withdrawal stage known as delirium tremens, or the DTs. This stage usually presents 48 to 72 hours after a person's last drink, with symptoms peaking around day five. It's associated with rapid-onset disorientation, agitation, and altered consciousness with severe autonomic changes and hallucinations, which are usually visual. Mortality associated with delirium tremens is as high as 20%, and it is often associated with cardiovascular, respiratory, and metabolic abnormalities. Delirium tremens is the most severe manifestation of AWS, and proper and timely management is crucial to prevent mortality and morbidity in these patients. Thank you, Madeline, for that excellent review. Now, another question for ED pharmacists and ED practitioners, how can we best monitor alcohol withdrawal within the emergency department? While the Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment Alcohol Scale, or the otherwise known as the CWA scale, is the most recognized and validated scale to determine the severity of alcohol withdrawal, it might not always be the right tool for the job. The CWA scale was originally validated in studies that excluded patients that were critically ill and medically complex. Within the ED, we treat many patients that are going through alcohol withdrawal that fit into these two categories. The CWA scale also relies on the patient's ability to answer questions which is inadequate for any patients that are intubated or sedated. Additionally, there's a decent amount of inter-rater scoring bias based on the breadth of scales being from zero to seven. Finally, within the ED, time is of the essence, so taking five minutes to score a patient every one to two hours might not be feasible. Another tool that could be considered could be the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale, or the RAS score. 
This tool is much quicker than the CWAS scoring tool based on singular scoring system, ranging from unarousable to combative. This tool is also potentially more objective and can be applied easier to an ICU setting based on its frequency of use in assessing sedation in mechanically ventilated patients. However, to my knowledge, the RAS scoring tool is not validated in alcohol withdrawal in any setting. Moreover, the Minnesota Detoxification Scale, or the M-Min score, is another scale that can be used to assess alcohol withdrawal. The N-Min scale can be shown to correlate well with the CWAS scores, but is also more objective and more applicable to ICU patients since it does not rely on the patient's ability to answer questions or respond to commands. Finally, the Prediction of Alcohol Withdrawal Severity Scale, or the PAS score, is another scoring system that has been found to be most accurate in medical inpatient settings. With all of these different scoring tools and more, Dan, do you have any thoughts about what is the best tool for the ED provider and the ED pharmacist to use and assess for alcohol withdrawal? Thanks, Christian. This is a fantastic question that I feel like comes up a lot. Before I actually give you the, the answer, of, I'd like to actually preface it with some kind of thoughts about scoring tools or the appropriateness of scoring tools. So as scores can be falsely elevated due to comorbid conditions, kind of like what you brought up with our CWA score or suppressed due to some medications, the most important step is actually recognizing and making an accurate diagnosis of alcohol withdrawal syndrome at the beginning. There are classic situations which place individuals at an increased risk for severe alcohol withdrawal, including advanced age, numerous prior incidents for, of emissions or for alcohol withdrawal, comorbid medical or surgical illnesses, and dependence upon diaz benzodiazepines or barbiturates, and also an elevated blood alcohol concentration at the time of the development of alcohol withdrawal also puts patients at higher risk. And similar to most medical conditions, alcohol withdrawal is dynamic and accurate diagnosis but must be recognized as a scoring tool will never make the diagnosis for us. After the diagnosis is made, it is then imperative to understand the limitations of the chosen scoring tool and the assessing for the development of any confounding conditions. So your previous statements and Madeline's previous statements, I prefer using a scale that relies on signs rather than symptoms in the ED due to the time constraints put upon our support staff and in an attempt to limit the variation while applying the score. After alcohol withdrawal has been appropriately diagnosed by a provider, I personally believe a provider should reassess the patient after receiving the chosen treatment agent to determine the trajectory of the illness and the adequacy of the treatment. Now, after I provided that long-winded preamble, when I think about scoring tools, there are two different types. There are a few that actually are used to assess the probability of the development of alcohol withdrawal during their hospitalization. And there are a few of those. You brought up the pause score, which is the predictive score. And then there's also one called the audit PC, or there's a LARS score. And they're all pretty good. Different providers will choose one or another to actually predict when the patient comes in, how bad or will they actually go into alcohol withdrawal. And then there's the tools that, uh, that are used to assess the present signs. So after they, you uh, believe they're having alcohol withdrawal to actually 
assess how bad their alcohol withdrawal is for their treatment. So almost the symptom treatments. And so you brought up the CEWA and anymore, uh, most people that are using the CEWA score are actually using what we call the CEWA AR score, which is the Clinical Institute of Withdrawal Assessment for Alcohol. It's the revised score. Uh, this is the most well-known and widely adopted, but it's also the most time intensive, like you brought up. And when you perform it serially, it takes up a lot of time for our nurses, for the patient, for kind of everyone. So it makes that kind of hard to do in real practice. Also, the CWA score requires a patient with a fully intact cognition. So if they have altered cognition state, you can't use the CWA score, which makes it really hard once a patient does go on to develop hallucinosis, DTs, intubated states, things like that. Another scoring system is called the BOS. And the BOS is the brief alcohol withdrawal scale. It's a shorter scoring system kind of broken down from the, the CWA. There's uh, another one called the SAS, which is the short alcohol withdrawal scale. The reason why some providers prefer that is because it actually is self-administered by patients. So patients actually do the scale themselves and they self-score uh, on objective findings and then they can uh, kind of give it to the providers. Then there's the G. M-A-W-S, which is the Glasgow Modified Alcohol Withdrawal Scale. This is five quick items. It's very quick, very easy. And then lastly, as you brought up, there's the RAS. RAS is something that, that our ICU colleagues are very familiar with, patients that are intubated or in really bad delirium states. And so this RAS can be implemented when patients are unable to communicate clearly with their providers. So what I personally do, I personally prefer using the pause score when I'm trying to determine a, a safe patient disposition, whether or not they can be discharged with outpatient detoxification or if they versus the general floor or the ICU. If they're scoring really high on that, obviously I'm going to be more conservative on where they go. And then after I diagnose someone with alcohol withdrawal that I absolutely know they're in alcohol withdrawal, I personally like the BOS or the brief alcohol withdrawal scale just because I've used it a lot. I do not have a specific reason of why I would point a provider towards one to the other. The big, the essence of all this is do the same thing appropriately and reassess when you have a confounding or change in their status. Thank you for the, the review of all those scoring tools, Dan. Additionally, I kind of ask myself the question too when I'm treating these patients is why is it so important that these patients, when they present to the ED, receive timely and appropriate treatment right up front? And would you be able to comment on that, Dan? You're completely right when you say that it's very important to, for these patients to receive timely care and to be appropriately recognized early on. So alcohol use disorder is extremely common and contributes to a very large number of ED visits daily, both nationally and internationally. 50% of patients with alcohol use disorder will experience some kind of clinical significant withdrawal symptoms uh, as Madeline kind of went through with things such as someplace around 10 to 11% develop seizures, 8% develop hallucinations, 5 to 20% fatality rate if patients are untreated. But if alcohol withdrawal is properly recognized and treated, the fatality rate drastically decreases to less than 1%. As the vast majority of hospitalized patients with alcohol withdrawal are actually admitted for reasons other than alcohol withdrawal, it's absolutely required that ED providers recognize and treat these patients as early as possible as any delays in treatments are well known to be associated with worse outcomes, including seizures, hallucinations, mechanical ventilation, delayed care for other comorbid conditions. A good example would be a patient that has a fractured femur. They go into, and they're 
planning to go to the operating room in the morning and they go into bad hallucinations, bad DTs in the middle of the night, that's absolutely going to prolong your ability to actually manage what they're there for in the hospital at that point. And with that, that prolongs hospitalizations. Um, you also get iatrogenic complications from those situations. And then also, unfortunately, this can also contribute to death, whether it's from their prolonged hospitalization and all the things like atrogenic problems or just alcohol withdrawal in itself. So it's absolutely imperative to recognize and start treating these patients early. So with that background and moving now into the alcohol withdrawal treatment. So after we treat any acute issues within alcohol withdrawal, such as the seizures that may come with airway concerns, we know that benzodiazepines have historically been the first line go-to treatment for alcohol withdrawal. So benzodiazepines have been a longstanding main, mainstay in the treatment of alcohol withdrawal based on their direct action at the GABA receptor. Benzodiazepines have consistently shown to decrease the severity of withdrawal symptoms, seizure frequency, and rate of delirium associated with alcohol withdrawal. Benzodiazepines can either be given by the oral or parental route, depending on the patient condition. There has been a decent amount of controversy about which is the best in benzodiazepine to give for these patients. However, a 2010 Cochrane review found no benzodiazepine to be superior over another. In a 2020 article that compared the use of diazepam versus lorazepam in close to 900 ED patients showed no major difference between these two. There has also been the debate of giving a benzodiazepine on a fixed schedule versus assessing the patient and giving PRN benzodiazepine based on the scoring tools that we've talked about above. With this, both protocols are widely used. Few of these studies have been done in the ED, but the ones that have been done have shown decreases in both total benzodiazepine use with a potentially shorter length of stay. Dan, do you have any thoughts about what benzodiazepine works best for these patients? And would there be any benzodiazepine that you would avoid, especially in ED patients with alcohol withdrawal? And then also any thoughts on the fixed versus PRN dosing of these benzodiazepines? I feel like this is a very common question that we're all kind of asked as toxicologists almost on a daily basis. So the, my short answer is use the benzodiazepine that you're comfortable dosing aggressively when it's needed. I personally rely heavily upon diazepam due to its active metabolite, but would not argue everyone needs to use this benzodiazepine. If we recognize that downregulation that Madeline brought up of the GABA-A receptors, which we call kindling, and the upregulation of NMDA, then it makes sense that a patient going through alcohol withdrawal state, uh, states may need a baseline uh, increase in their GABA-A agonism. Because I know that a patient with alcohol withdrawal will worsen early in their treatment course, we can use the pharmacokinetics of diazepam to provide a longer acting agent without the peaks and troughs of a benzodiazepine that does not have an active metabolite. In a patient with cirrhosis and severe alcohol withdrawal, the effects of diazepine may linger longer, but that may actually be to our advantage in certain situations. So a lot of us in the toxicology or pharmacy worlds recognize that prolonged infusions at high concentrations of, of medications such as lorazepam may contribute to a metabolic acidosis due to the metabolism of the diluent propylene glycol, but this does not occur in the ED and should not change our initial management. This being stated, I personally do not have a reason to avoid a specific benzodiazepine in the ED. Again, the patient is essentially in a life-threatening state due to the downregulation of GABA-A receptors, and the provider should use the agent that they are comfortable with. 
The discussion regarding scheduled versus symptom trigger treatment is a good one. I know that fixed dosing is common in some institutions, and I remember doing this in the floor early in my training, but there have been multiple studies showing that symptom triggered treatment reduces the amount of medications given and may actually reduce the patient's length of stay. This is not a hard and fast rule though, as there certainly are some cases that may benefit from a fixed schedule. Usually these patients have multiple confounding pathophysiologic states requiring multiple medications, which may blunt the recognition of worsening alcohol withdrawal. I would hope that our listeners would recognize that patients with alcohol use disorder may suffer from other substance use disorders and have multiple medical conditions due to alcohol use or entirely independent from alcohol. Additionally, it's common that patients who present after an intentional overdose tend to have a polyingestion, which may be in the presence of an underlying alcohol use disorder. For that reason, in specific cases, I may actually recommend fixed dosing of a GABA-A agonist or a benzodiazepine until we get control over the multiple coke uh, morbid conditions um, and then kind of go forward from there. Thank you, Dan, for the insight into the comparison between that fixed dosing schedule and the PRN dosing schedule, as well as comparing the different types of benzodiazepines and giving that insight. Now, there has been a, now a resurgence of literature about talking about barbiturates and where those fit into our alcohol withdrawal practice. So in patients that have a heavy and or chronic use of alcohol, those patients can eventually develop a cross tolerance to benzodiazepines that can limit their efficacy. Because of this, other therapeutic options have been investigated for severe alcohol withdrawal patients. This is where phenobar enters. Barbiturates alone or with benzodiazepines have been studied for the treatment of alcohol withdrawal. Barbiturates also work at the GABA-A receptor, but work differently than benzodiazepines through keeping the chloride channels open longer compared to more frequently. Because of their rapid onset within usually five to 30 minutes and the long duration, which is widely variable, but can be anywhere from 50 to 140 hours, phenobarb is an ideal drug for use in the ED. There have been multiple studies looking at phenobarb's effectiveness on alcohol withdrawal in the ED. In these studies, there has been also a wide range of dosing protocols from a fixed uh, loading dose of 260 milligrams and then 130 milligram PRN doses to a 10 mg per kg one-time dose in the ED. These studies have fairly consistently shown that phenobarb is as or slightly more effective than the standard benzodiazepine regimens, really without an increase in side effects. So Dan, do you have any experience with phenobarb in these patients? And do you have any thoughts about how we should be dosing phenobarb in these ED patients specifically? And then kind of wrapping up with, do you see where phenobarb's place is in practice at the current moment. Yeah, Christian, this is a phenomenal question and a great topic. So this topic it has a lot of interest from a lot of different people, and it's a great source of discussion. The tolerance that occurs to benzodiazepines in some patients with severe alcohol dependence is extremely interesting. When we use the words tolerance or downregulation, we are grossly oversimplifying the physiology which is occurring in these patients. Due to the repeated agonism of the GABA-A receptor subunits, some of these subunits may actually be endocytosed and replaced with other subunit types, which do not respond as well to certain agents that rely upon the endocytose subunits. The scientific term for this is called kindling and is well described in alcohol dependent states. Essentially, the chronic alcohol dependence can reduce the number of subunits available for proper response to a benzodiazepine. 
barbiturates interact with the GABA receptor on other subunits and can open the chloride channel despite this state actually happening. I do use phenobarb in some patients with alcohol withdrawal, but recognize that not all providers have the same comfort with this medication and may not manage enough uh, patients with severe alcohol withdrawal syndrome for this discussion to change their practice. That's okay. There are a few different cases that I tend to use phenobarbital for, and there's going to be three that we're going to go through. So number one, a patient with worsening withdrawal despite aggressive benzodiazepine treatment. Essentially, the patient is proving our previous scientific discussion on kindling, and the benzodiazepines will not be enough to keep them safe. A second patient type would be a patient with severe alcohol withdrawal despite having a high blood alcohol concentration. We all recognize the trajectory of these patients and that the patient will worsen with the metabolism of their remaining ethanol. In these settings, we can use the pharmacokinetics and extremely long half-life of phenobarbital to provide basal GABA-A agonism and change the trajectory of their illness course. And then the third type of patient is a patient that has severe enough alcohol withdrawal that they may necessitate intubation and an infusion of an agent like propofol, another GABA-A agonist. If we had a little bit of time to administer phenobarbital, we may be able to avoid intubation and all the subsequent risk associated with prolonged mechanical ventilation in these states. As you asked specifically about the ED and not other units, I'll direct my response about the dosing to the ED. The dose that I use depends on the clinical scenario and if I'm at bedside. If I am bedside and the patient is clearly in severe alcohol withdrawal, I tend to start with 260 milligrams IV, but I quickly will calculate what a total 10 milligrams per kilogram dose would be as then I know what percentage of that dose I am starting with, what I'm initially giving. If the patient is smaller in size or already has some somnolence, I may choose a lower dose of something around 130 milligrams. That being said, I feel the most important part of this treatment is a timely reassessment. No matter which dose is chosen, our repeat assessment should be completed by a provider within 20 to 30 minutes after administration of phenobarbital, not the typical one to four hours directed in the majority of our withdrawal scoring tools. If the patient needs another dose of phenobarbital at the time, I go ahead and redose them. Essentially, I use the first one to two hours of phenobarbital administration and close reassessments to titrate their dose. And once you get to a patient to an appropriate dose safely, it is rare that you then would go on to need large doses of GABA-8 agonists after that point. I totally agree, Dan. I think where I've seen phenobarb used best in its practices, aggressive up front and then following right behind with another 130 or so as much as they need it to get them under control. If you, the more you wait to get these patients under control, the more issues you have. With this, we also have other agents that have been under recent investigation or a historic investigation. And Madeline, would you be able to speak about some of these maybe up and comers or ones that maybe have shown not to be beneficial in alcohol withdrawal? So uh, first up is gabapentin. Uh, gabapentin is one alternative pharmacologic approach to managing alcohol withdrawal syndrome. It's not approved for this indication, but may be considered as a second line or adjunct therapy. It has sedative, anxiolytic, and anticonvulsant properties, making it useful for managing many of the symptoms associated with alcohol withdrawal. 
Gabapentin does not directly interact with GABA receptors, but inhibits voltage-dependent calcium channels, which indirectly modulates GABA transmission. It's associated with a lower potential for abuse independence than benzodiazepines and has a relatively good safety profile. In a randomized controlled trial, patients who started gabapentin after three days of abstinence had fewer heavy drinking days, which is defined as five or more drinks for men and four or more drinks for women, and greater rates of abstinence versus placebo. Additionally, a retrospective study of 100 patients presenting to the ED found that those who received gabapentin at a dose of 1,800 milligrams daily for the first two days upon admission required significantly lower total doses of benzodiazepines. Recommended starting dosage for adjunctive treatment could be 300 to 600 milligrams every six to eight hours. Next up is propofol. Propofol has shown efficacy as an adjunct agent in several small studies and case reports, but it was associated with longer hospital stays in other studies. Due to the significant risk for hypotension and respiratory depression, close monitoring and mechanical ventilation are necessary, limiting its use in the ED and causing unnecessary use of limited ICU resources. Next is ketamine. Ketamine, which has a lower potential for respiratory depression, has been evaluated in a few small retrospective studies as adjunctive treatment. It was associated with a decreased length of ICU stay and decreased need for mechanical ventilation, but prospective studies will need to prove its benefits and further evaluate its safety profile before it can be recommended for use in the emergency department. And then moving on to baclofen, a 2019 Cochrane review found insufficient and low quality evidence relating to the use of baclofen as prophylaxis and in the treatment of alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Additionally, in the French Bacloria study, while a reduction in agitation events were seen, patients had a longer ICU length of stay and longer days on the ventilator with baclofen compared to placebo. Lastly, clonidine. Clonidine is an alpha-adrenergic agonist, and agonists such as clonidine, as well as beta blockers such as atenolol and metoprolol, may be used adjunctively with benzodiazepines for persistent hypertension or tachycardia that's often associated with alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Thank you for that review of past and upcoming agents within the field of alcohol withdrawal, Madeline. Dan, with the expansion of Presidex in kind of all areas of the hospital, especially in starting to move now to the emergency department for procedural sedations and such, do you see a place for its therapy within the emergency department? I personally do not like dexmedetomidine in patients with alcohol withdrawal syndrome. I recognize that the American Society of Addiction Medicine, or AMSA, has a published guideline stating that dexmedetomidine may be used as an adjunct for the treatment of alcohol withdrawal, but it is important to recognize that they clearly state that dexmedetomidine should only be used for autonomic hyperactivity and anxiety when these are not controlled by benzodiazepines alone. They clearly state that dexmedetomidine should not be used in lieu of benzodiazepines. Additionally, they clearly state that dexmedetomidine should not be used to prevent or treat withdrawal seizures or delirium. So I do not like dexmedetomidine in these patients because the medication blunts our ability to properly assess the life-threatening effects from alcohol withdrawal. Due to its alpha-2 agonism, it reduces the tachycardia and decreases the outward appearance of agitation or delirium, which are both vital to the assessment of these patients. 
I personally feel dexmedetomidine blunts my ability to recognize when a patient is getting sicker and does not provide any life-saving benefit for these patients. From my review of the literature, it also does not appear to reduce lengths of stay or improve outcomes in these patients. So I personally, especially in the ED early on in the course, I don't see any benefit for kind of going early to dexmedetomidine. Totally agree, Dan. I think it makes our patients look better and it makes them makes us feel better about our patients and providing that care, but it doesn't actually treat that underlying disease that we all really want to do and what benefits these patients. Additionally, I think we are taught that in alcohol withdrawal, patients need a sufficient amount of other medications besides benzodiazepines, barbiturates, and et cetera, in their course of the state. This could include things like vitamins, such as thiamine on admission to the ED. A paper in JAMA pointed out that this, that if the first provider that the patient re, may, uh, a paper in JAMA pointed out that the first provider that the patient sees, if they do not remember to give thiamine when appropriate, it is often omitted by subsequent treating physicians. And I actually just saw a paper come out on the 7th that said about 50% of the time we miss giving thiamine to alcohol withdrawal patients, which is quite a large number of patients that are entering our health system. Now, it's also important to understand which alcohol withdrawal patients might need a higher dose of thiamine and which ones are okay with the standard 100 milligrams oral tablet daily. Dan, do you have any major thoughts on which of these patients need a higher dose or which of these patients need thiamine more aggressively? And then what dosing do you recommend for patients that maybe do express some concern for the dreaded Warnicke's encephalopathy? It's so another fascinating topic to get into. And unfortunately, I'm not going to have a great answer. So in a patient without signs of Wernicke's encephalopathy, I do not have evidence. I can't find any evidence to support one regimen over another. As some of the signs of alcohol intoxication or withdrawal can overlap with Wernicke's encephalopathy, I understand that some clinicians will provide high-dose thiamine even when the patient did not have actual clinical evidence of Wernicke's. A relatively recent a Cochrane review did, did not find evidence to provide recommendations on dose, frequency, or duration of thiamine treatment for treatments of Wernicke's encephalopathy from alcohol use, but all these patients had confirmed Wernicke's, so it is difficult to extrapolate to patients that are at risk but do not have Wernicke's. At this point, it appears there is not a proven regimen which contributes a lot to the debate by well-intentioned clinicians about uh, how much thiamine and the dosing we should be doing. I feel there definitely is a role for thiamine in our patients with alcohol dependence, and I would treat a patient with signs of thiamine deficiency, including Wernicke's encephalopathy with high-dose thiamine, but I do not currently have evidence to change regimens or dosing for patients who are at risk but have no clinical evidence for thiamine deficiency. So a long-winded answer of saying, yes, we know thiamine is important, but I don't know when, unless they have objective Wernicke's encephalopathy, when to actually switch from a lower dose to a higher dose. And I don't know how long that regimen should last. Definitely a complex topic. And additionally, there's a second topic of kind of the historic of not giving glucose or dextrose before thiamine has been administered. The theory is that thiamine deficient patients in the process of metabolizing the carbohydrate load could use up their stores of the vitamin and be completely thiamine depleted. From my research, there is little to no information to really back this up. Have you heard about this uh, before, Dan, and have any thoughts about this? And in addition to thiamine, folic acid, and multivitamins and such, are there any therapies that we should be considering as well for these patients, kind of supplemental therapies? So when you talk about the 
glucose or dextrose before thiamine. This is a classic teaching in all medical professional trainings. I do not discount that thiamine deficiency contributes to Marenchy's encephalopathy, but I can find no legitimate evidence that dextrose administration prior to thiamine contributes to worse outcomes. And so let's briefly explain why that classic teaching has some major holes in it. So dextrose is just the de-isomer of racemic glucose. It's a simple carbohydrate. Humans rely upon carbohydrates in their diet, but also will regulate carbohydrates in their circulation through things such as gluconeogenesis and glycolysis. That means that all living humans, including patients with alcohol use disorders, have dextrose in their system at all times. Thiamine is a coenzyme for, for a couple enzymes related to the breakdown of glucose, both pyruvate dehydrogenase and alpha ketoglutarate de dehydrogenase. These enzymes are both intracellular and they're both in the mitochondria. Thiamine requires activation through a couple steps to add phosphate groups prior to being moved to and then active in these thiamine reliance enzymes in the mitochondria. I know I'm speaking to the choir here, but the absorption, distribution, and activation of thiamine is not an immediate situation. It takes time for these to occur. So due to these realities, thiamine given prior to dextrose, even if it's given well before dextrose, you know, 5, 10, 20 minutes, it's still not active for some time. And this classic teaching appears to be overstated and also oversimplified. And when you ask about uh, roles for other uh, multivitamins or therapies for these types of patients. I feel a uh, multivitamin appears to be a very low hanging fruit in these patients. Another diagnosis, which is very common in patients with alcohol use disorder is alcohol ketoacidosis, which is easily recognized by anion gap metabolic acidosis on the basic metabolic panel. So if people were to remember the things, our differentials for uh, anion gap metabolic acidosis, a lot of people rely upon something called like mud piles. And the D, normally people think of it as DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, but it's actually not diabetic ketoacidosis. The D stands for ketoacidosis, which is not fair. But with that, alcohol ketoacidosis is very, very, very common reason for an anion gap metabolic acidosis. And this, this occurs due to a shunting away from our TCA cycle due to the decreased efficiency of the thiamine dependent enzymes and an increased NADH to NAD plus ratio in our cells, which happens when we're chronically alcohol dependent, or if we've kind of been on a recent binge, this creates a simple redox reaction, which shunts pyruvate to lactate that shunting developing a, a lactic acidosis is actually a type B lactic acidosis. The treatment of alcohol like ketoacidosis is simple. You provide thiamine and carbohydrates. Giving our usual non-dextrose containing fluids for this type of lactic acidosis, this non-perfusing issue lactic acidosis will actually not help these patients at all, will not help their metabolic derangement, but it actually may even mildly worsen their acidemia or acidosis from giving uh, normal saline instead. So multivitamin, seems very reasonable in most of these patients be on the lookout for alcohol ketoacidosis and just be aware that these patients need thiamine plus some kind of carbohydrate stores to kind of re-kickstart their metabolic demands. Perfect. Thank you, Dan, for that biochemical and pathophysiologic review of thiamine carbohydrates and the importance of those in our alcohol withdrawal patients. Well, wow. Now I know we talked about a lot today, but I want to make sure that we end with the top three points to know and consider when treating alcohol withdrawal. So first, alcohol withdrawal, let's see, 
Alcohol use disorder is extremely common and contributes to a large number of ED visits daily. Because of this, it is required that ED providers recognize and treat these patients early as delayed treatment is associated with worse outcomes. Secondly, there isn't a known difference between benzodiazepines and their use in alcohol withdrawal in the emergency department. Use the benzodiazepine that you are comfortable with dosing aggressively when needed. Thirdly, consider phenobarbital in patients with worsening alcohol withdrawal despite aggressive benzodiazepines. Severe alcohol withdrawal despite having a high blood alcohol concentration or in patients that may necessitate intubation and an infusion of an agent like propofol. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's clinical resources on, on emergency medicine. You can find member exclusive offerings such as the recorded emergency pharmacist series, links to articles and guidelines for emergency medicine, and other practice resources. Thanks again for tuning in for this session and join us here every Thursday where we will be having an ASHP member discuss a variety of clinical topics. Be sure to, to subscribe to the ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.